You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. is um, he takes the pen from the, um, from the scribe that he is uh, dictating this letter to. So Paul writes 13 letters uh, in the New Testament, and um, all of them he uh, dictates the letters to um, a scribe, and amanuensis uh, is, is what they were called. And it's a common practice of the day, and they, they don't add any color commentary of themselves. Sometimes a couple of the letters you'll see that the scribe will add his own greeting. I softly say hello or, or something there like that at the end. But they're writing word for word what it is that Paul will say. And then three of the letters, four of the letters, Paul will at the very end take the pen from the scribe as sort of an authentication of, hey, this really is me, Paul, or, hey, I really want to add something here, or he, uh, he just he takes the pen, he, he, he puts the pen to the paper of his own accord, and here at the very end, it, it, what we have marked is chapter 11 of verse 6, and he says, hey, listen, I've got something I really want to say, I want to say it in my own hand, and I want you to see, you know it's me because I'm writing with this large font. It may be that the font's so large because, as we discussed earlier, Paul suffered from terrible eyesight. He wasn't able to see, and so you, you see Paul here with his face uh, pressed up as close as he can to the parchment, and, he, and he's writing, and the, and, the, and, the, and the letters are big. Maybe the font's big for emphasis because he's wanting to emphatically summarize all that it is that he's had to say. But nonetheless, here in Paul's own hand, this is the most we have written by Paul's own hand. All these words are Paul's as they are transcribed. But here in Paul's own hand in this large font, it may be that even as it's read to the churches, the one who's reading says, hey, look, here, you can see it even from across the room how big Paul's writing is here at the end. And the first thing that it is that he begins to sum up here in verses 12 and 13, as he sums up his criticism of his opponents, these Judaizers. And if there was any um, doubt in your mind, if these Judaizers, these opponents, these ones that had come in after Paul who were, who were teaching what Paul calls in the beginning another gospel, if there is such a thing as another gospel... If there was any doubt in your mind, if Paul had any sympathy for them, if, if in somehow they were just well-meaning, but just confused, Paul lays all of that to rest with these three um, hammering indictments in verses 12 and 13. The first thing he says about them, and this is true, I think, in one degree or another of most false teachers. And listen, we, we, have a, we have a lot of them. They're, they're all around us. It's, it's the nature of the, of the gift that comes with, with people who are able to communicate. 
But notice what it is that he says there in verse 12. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. He he says, listen, they're they're those that want to look good. I mean, they keep up appearances. It's about how they look and about how you look. It's about how they look and about how... Remember the old uh, Saturday Night Live character Bill Crystal, Billy Crystal used to play? You know, he used to say, you, you, look, you look marvelous. That's what these guys were. Galatians 1.10, he, he put all of those issues to rest for himself there in the very beginning, the approval of man and the approval of God. And he, and he outlined the differences. Look, oftentimes you can't have both. Please God... Sometimes you have the favor of man, sometimes you don't. That's how it goes. But if you're aiming at pleasing man, you can't, you can count on compromise that doesn't please God. If your aim is at pleasing man, you can count on that being a compromise that doesn't please God. And that's what marked these, these opponents, these false teachers. The other thing he says is they lived in such a way so as to avoid persecution. Their theology, their their teaching, what it is that they taught, what it is that they believed, what it is that they passed on was filtered through their well-being, their personal safety, the protection of their own comforts, uh, preservation of life, their luxury, their happiness. And that kind of theology means that you hear only what you want to hear, you do only what you want to do, and ultimately you are left not with the God of the Bible, but a God of your own making. You hear that? When what you hear is filtered through your avoidance of inconvenience, then you no longer have the God of the Bible. You have a God of your own making. I mean, that is a heavy indictment. And the reality is, is that a theology of grace is the heart of salvation. But here's what it means. Grace is what saves you. But Paul is saying there is nothing safe about it. Did you hear that? Grace is what saves you. But there's nothing safe about it. Safe in the arms of God and safe in the hands of the world are two entirely different things. Those who have been saved by God will often find they are now in all kinds of new danger when it comes into the world. You are in. You are in social peril. Did you know this? You you are in peril in your place at work. When it comes to relationships. You're in peril when it comes to the world. Safe in the arms of God does not equate to safety in the world any that's what Paul is saying. In, in, a, in a theology that is filtered through a desire to remain safe in the world, 
no longer allows us to see the God of the Bible. It's a, it's a, it's a great litmus test. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a second, but he goes on in the other one here in verse 13. He says, for those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. So here's the deal. He says, look, they're just a bunch of hypocrites anyway. They're just heaping the law on you. What they wanted is they came in, they wanted you to be circumcised, and at the end of the day, what we realized about them is it's not that they cared um, so much about you keeping the law per se because they themselves weren't keepers of the law. In fact, those that preach the keeping of the law, we know they're hypocrites because nobody can keep the law. They just wanted notches on their belt. The Judaizers' interest was not in the souls of the Galatians. It was notches on their belt. They desire you to be circumcised so that they can boast in your flesh. The Judaizers' purpose, as Paul frames it, was to conquer the Galatian believers, not to win them, not to free them, but to enslave them. The goal of the Judaizers was to claim the Galatians for themselves, like, like trophies or notches on their belt or lines on the resume or converts that they conquered, conquered and captured, literally to mark them. It was a numbers game. And Paul never speaks of the gospel like that. Paul is not building a brand or a platform or a tribe. His ego is not driven or consumed by the pursuit of the next convert. He's not advancing a career or climbing a ladder or seeking to increase his apostolic worth by chasing a reputation as an evangelist that can close the deal. He is compelled. Because he can do no other. I mean, his, his life has been changed. It has been, it has been forever impacted. It has been turned upside down. His, his life has been ruined to everything else but Jesus. And he can't help but talk about the grace of God in his son, Jesus, that's, that's, that's all he can do. I'd love to say a thousand things about that when it comes to strategies. If we should even call them strategies. I mean, we probably should, I don't know. We have a better word. Well, we should tell. We should. We should be people who who talk about our our faith. We should be people who care to talk about our faith with the people in our lives. Um, we should. We should be compelled by that, but not compelled by it because it is a. It's a. It's a. It's a duty that, you know, we've got to do it. And, and we, we fear hearing statistics like, well, 98% of people have never shared their faith. And we don't want to be a part of those 98% people. We want to be part of the 2% people. See, now that's the wrong motivation. Or, I think, well, I, you know, 
I want to. I don't want to have lived my whole Christian life and die and never have shared my faith. Well, listen, you. You don't want to live your whole Christian life and have died and never shared your faith. But that's not the motivation either. But it's like, I mean, have you ever had a have you had the key lime pie at the foundry yet? I mean, if you haven't had the key lime pie at the foundry, I mean you've got to have the key lime pie at the foundry. I mean, it'll absolutely change your life. I mean, because I'm because I'm telling you. That's the best pie in the whole world. I mean, it's the kind of pie that once you have that pie, it'll change your category about pie. I mean, you'll forsake all other pies. I mean, if you don't have the pie, it's your loss. But I'm telling you, once you have that pie, that, I mean, listen, we're evangelists about all kinds of things we care about. There are Mac evangelists and truck evangelists and pie evangelists. And we talk about those things because, man, we've been deeply affected by them and we love them and we want other people to love them. And I don't get anything about if you eat the pie at the foundry or not. If you don't, that's your loss. But man, I hope you do because I care about you and I love this pie and I want those two things to connect to the glory of God. And I'm motivated out of, this is the greatest thing I've ever tasted. And I want you to taste it this. Do you see this? And I think the reason most believers, we don't share our faith is because we have not we have, we have not tasted it lately. We we aren't enjoying we, we don't know the grace. We, I have so much more to say. We'll, we'll talk more about this. We'll, we'll have an opportunity to talk more about this this summer, and I can't wait to do that. So, but Paul gets to the heart of it, and this is this is this is why he says what he says in verse fourteen. He says, "But for me, but but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which." The world's been crucified to me, and I to the world. Now he gets to the heart of the matter. So this is my motivation. This is what's going on with me. Now it's interesting that Paul says, look, of all the things I could boast in, this is what I'm boasting in. Now Paul, in writing, and and he could have boasted in all kinds of things. I mean, Paul, Paul could have boasted in a resume that would have put every person in this room and in the history of Christianity to shame. And his opponents to shame. He was brilliant. And it's also interesting, of all the things that he could have mentioned about Christ, could have boasted in his teaching, his miracles, his deity, his incarnation, His resurrection, his ascension, his future coming, his glory. He could have boasted in any of those things. And yet what he chooses to boast in, don't miss this, he boasts in the cross. 
See, the death on a cross has always been above every other a death of shame. I mean, you die by a fire or a sword or an axe or a hanging or a guillotine. I mean, those deaths, each of them terrible as they are, come with some kind of honor. I mean, they don't have in them by design a curse or a shame or a humiliation. Not by design. They're designed simply to end life. Not so the cross. Its victim is nailed in agony to splintered wood, suspended naked, flesh torn to pieces, gazed upon by multitudes. And it's always been seen as disgraced and degrading to humanity. Actually, it's it's meant... It's meant to cause the, the one to look less than human, to be less than human, to be mocked, not pitied. And God allowed for centuries this idea to be rooted in the culture in order that there would be a sufficient place of shame lower than all others for the great substitute who in the fullness of time was to take the sinner's place, to be, to be the one who would be outcast by man, to be outcast from God, despised, rejected, deemed unworthy to die, even in the city, to be cast out from the city. And yet, here in Galatians, after centuries, millennia, of the cross being an object of shame, it becomes an instrument. It becomes the source of, You see, of boasting. Paul's single and only source. Strength and honor and life and blessing. His whole life is centered here. The symbol of curse and shame for Paul has become, and for every believer, a a power unleashed in the world. And you know what it's done? It's toppled kingdoms and altars and idols and superpowers and philosophies and has melted hearts and changed lives and healed families and marriages and redeemed broken lives and brought beauty from utter ashes. That's what it's done. And it has never drawn a sword. It has come with a word. A word superhuman, a word supernatural, not on the lips of angels, but from the lips of men given by God, the word of his eternal son, by the spirit of his son. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is divine truth. It is the 
epitome of God's revelation. It is the manifestation of his attributes and character. It is the pouring out of his grace. It is the satisfaction of his righteousness. It's the height of his wisdom, the breadth of his mercy, and the depth of his love. That's what he is. And that's why Paul will boast in it. the 19th century, there was a man named Horatio, Horatius Bonner. He said this, yet the cross has mystery, or as some men would say, it's puzzles, it's contradictions. It illuminates, yet it darkens. It interprets, yet it confounds. It raises questions, but refuses to answer all that it raises. It solves difficulty, but it creates them too. It locks as well as unlocks. It opens, yet no man shutteth. It shutteth, and no man opens. It is life, yet it is death. It is honor, yet it is shame. It is wisdom, but it's also foolishness. It's both gain and loss, pardon and condemnation, strength and weakness. Joy and sorrow, love and hatred, medicine and poison, hope and despair, grace and righteousness. Law and deliverance from law. It is Christ's humiliation and it is his exaltation. It is Satan's victory, yet it is Satan's defeat. It is the gate of heaven. At the same time, it is the gate of hell. That's the cross. I'll tell you, we, we speak so lightly of it, I think. It's lost the, the weight of what it would mean that Paul would say in this culture. I boast... In the cross. Paul's accusers would say, then Paul, you've just made an absolute fool of yourself. So be it. There's three things I want to say about it. As we come to the end of all that Paul has said here in Galatians. Because the cross is central to the heart of the gospel. When Paul speaks about boasting in the cross, here's what the cross does. It, on the one hand, it reveals who man is. God does in the cross is he takes the cross and he and he opens up clearly the heart of man who is man he brings into the light the heart of humanity 
humanity in general, but you know more than that. He brings into the light your heart and my heart. See, in, in the cross, what happens is, is, is we, like it or not, we speak out. We were no longer silent. We have spoken. What has been unconscious is now made conscious. Our feelings about God, His being, His authority, His place, His character, His law, are now revealed from our heart. So even though Acts chapter 2 verse 23 says it was determined by God, is his counsel and his foreknowledge, God determined the cross. We were at work in the transaction. We erected the cross. We nailed the Son of God to the cross. And God permitted it. We might vent the feelings of our heart. We express them. Our hatred of God, our hatred of His Son. We deemed the cross to be fitting for the Son of God. Our natural heart spoke and we confessed publicly to be haters of God. We took pains to show the intensity of our hatred. Man hating God and hating most. The very moment when God is loving the most. That's who we are. So the cross then is... The public declaration of man's hatred of God, man's rejection of his son, and our belief that we need no Savior. That's it. That's what the cross does. And the truth is, you know, at the 21st century, we would say, well, can't indict me for that. I mean, I wasn't even around. Okay. Well, the truth is, you don't get off the hook. The reality is, any one of us had been there, we would have been with the crowd yelling, crucify him. Even those closest to Jesus scattered. None of us are off the hook. In, in, in fact, the, the only way one is off the hook is in the belief of who Jesus is and placing our faith in the cross, in the necessity of the cross, in the necessity that Jesus had to die on the cross, that that was the only way that one could be saved in owning the cross, in the shame of the cross, in the absolute horror of the cross, 
for my sin. It is our embracing of its horror. Do we by faith are we received by the one who took the shame? That's it. So the cross reveals who we are. It opens our heart. It reveals what's there. The other thing the cross does is it reveals who God is. It is at the cross where grace is revealed. It's at the cross where love is revealed. It shines forth. We know the love of God because he laid down his life for us, 1 John 3.16. It's a love stronger than shame. It's a love stronger than suffering, a love stronger than death, love immeasurable, unquenchable. He will go on in 1 John 4. God is love. And what John argues is you want to know what love is, you want to see it, John points to the cross. And that love is put to the test, and the cross is the extreme test, the most extreme test of all that love could be put through. The fact that in that moment that Jesus does not summon the myriad of angels on ready humanity and yet willingly hangs in shame and gives up his life it stands the test not only does it reveal God's righteousness I mean his love and his grace, it also reveals his righteousness. God does not spare his own son. He is the righteous God who loves righteousness and will by no means clear the guilty. And the righteous son of God bears the unrighteousness of men. You got to think about this. How does God both reward and punish at the same time? How does he reward the righteous one and yet punish the substitute of the unrighteous? You think, well, so what God's going to do, he's going to lay the sin of the world upon the one who's righteous. So surely what God will do is he'll take the sin of the world, impute it to the one who's righteous and perfect. Surely he'll take it easy on him. Surely, surely he'll see and feel pity for the one who's righteous. Surely he'll mitigate the penalty. Surely he'll spare some degree of wrath for the one who's righteous, the one whom he's loved from all eternity. Surely he'll go easy. Surely he'll go easy on his boy. It does not.
sin is punishable. Jesus bears the full weight of it and all the consequences. And even sin found placed upon the most righteous and most beloved of all. Upon the highest person in all that the universe would know. It is still dealt with as sin. It is punished as sin. And Jesus is found as a common sinner. No exception, no mitigation. Is the righteousness of God as interpreted by the cross of Christ. How infinitely holy God is. Gloriously perfect. Exactingly just. God who gave his son. There is no weakness in his love. There is no indifference to wrong. There is love in his righteousness. And the cross proclaims it loud. It is finished. A righteous judge, a righteous pardon, righteous forgiving, saving, justifying, glorifying, loving. Then this, the cross, reveals the gospel. When the angels come to Mary and bring the news, you're going to have a son. Good news is on the way. His name's going to be Jesus Peace on earth and goodwill to men. The world had no idea. And step by step, the good news unfolded. But it is not until the cross is erected and the blood is shed and life is taken do we fully understand words of those glad tidings. The gospel is the good news concerning a divine sin bearer. Concerning that death which is everlasting life to us. Concerning the blood that purges the conscience from dead works. 
cleansing sin, reconciling us to God. The cross is reconciliation between us and God. And that's the good news. It's the long-awaited bruising of the heel of the woman's seed and the crushing of the serpent's head. is the appointed meeting place between the sinner and God. And where our advocate steps in to make peace in our stand. Pleading that we would turn and live. Wander no more and be reconciled to God. There peace is made. The debt is paid. The ransom is given. There we come to be claimed by the one who created us. That's why Paul boasts in nothing but the cross. Well, the Gospels... Paul does it because that's what the Gospels do. The Gospels give a disproportionate content to the passion. If you go to the Gospels to build a life of Jesus, what you find is about a third of the Gospels are all committed to the telling of the story of the passion of Jesus, the last week of his life. In fact, you go to the end of John, he says, hey, listen, much more could be written. I could fill up, fill up volumes, it could fill up pages, it would fill up books, it would fill up bookshelves, it would fill up libraries, it would fill the world of what Jesus taught and did. But what you really need to know is this, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Oh, let's see. How am I I out of time? How does this happen? Um, All right. Circumcision, uncircumcision. Circumcision gets you nothing. Uncircumcision gets you nothing. You got to be a new creation. Walk by this rule, peace and mercy. You can only have peace. You only experience mercy. That's because of grace. Let no one cause me trouble because I bear On my body, the marks of Jesus. That word marks is stigmata. Some in the old used to teach that Paul had, he woke up one day and he had the the marks, the cross marks on his body. And in the uh, words of Martin Luther, um, that's crazy. A paraphrase. What he means is he's contrasting the marks, the scars of the self-righteous, which were the circumcision marks, versus the marks of Jesus that Paul had. Their scars were the desires to be righteous in their self. The scars that Paul had were in service to Jesus. You don't go looking for those scars. Those scars come in life. Sometimes they come on the outside of your body and the place and time we live, those are not likely to happen. Sometimes those are not going to be physical. They're going to be the ones that 
that, that show up mental and emotional and social. They're not ones that scars that can be seen. Not by human eyes anyway. This is what Paul is thinking of, 1 Corinthians 4, 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. In 1 Corinthians 4, to this present hour we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat, when we have become we are still like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. And in 2 Corinthians 11, although this hasn't happened yet to Paul, it will. He says, am I talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked at night. In a day I was adrift to sea on frequent journeys, a danger from rivers, a danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, danger, danger, danger. Safe in the hands of God, not safe in the then he ends, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, brothers. Amen. It's a beautiful note to end on. Well, I want to conclude this way. In 1535, after writing almost 600 pages of commentary on, the, uh, on Paul's letter to the Galatians, actually, writing a commentary for the second time because the first commentary was written in 1519 Martin Luther writes this after 600 pages he says this I myself can hardly believe that when I delivered these public lectures on St. Paul's epistle to the Galatians I was as wordy as this book shows I was nevertheless I recognize that all the thoughts which I find set out in this book with such diligence as my brethren are really mine, so that I am compelled to admit that all of them, at least most of them, were spoken to me, spoken by me in my public presentation. For in my heart there rules this one doctrine, namely, faith in Christ. From it, through it, and to it, all my theological thought flows and returns day and night, yet I am aware that I have grasped of this wisdom in its height, width, and depth, what amount to a few poor and insignificant first fruits and fragments. Therefore, I'm ashamed to have my poor and feeble comments on this apostle and chosen instrument of God published. I'm forced to be ashamed of this very shame and to become shameless and bold by the infinite and horrible desecration and abomination that always raged in the church of God and not stop raging today against that solid rock which we call the doctrine of justification, namely that we are redeemed from sin, death, and the devil and endowed with eternal life, not through ourselves and certainly not through our works, which are even less than we are ourselves, but only through the help of another, the only Son of God, Jesus Christ.
talks about some of the opposition that he spoke against in writing this and the errors of his own day that he hoped he confronted. But then he says this, but it is not so much in opposition to them as for the benefit of our own people that these reflections about ours of this epistle of St. Paul has been published. Let these readers either thank me in the Lord for my diligence or forgive me for my weakness and boldness. Actually, I would not want this book to win the approval of the wicked, but only to irritate them. I love that. Lord bless Martin Luther. For it is addressed at the great cost of great effort only to those to whom Paul wrote this epistle. Namely, maybe you find yourself here. To those who are troubled, afflicted, vexed, and tempted. To those who are miserable Galatians in faith. For they're the only ones who understand it. You know, we began this series 20 weeks ago on January the 15th. We asked this question. It was a litmus test. We borrowed it from Jerry Bridges. We went through this. You might not understand the gospel of grace if. The gospel of God's grace if. I'm going to walk back through this real quick and see where you are today. You don't know God's grace. You don't understand it if. And I pray that you find yourself better able to answer this at the end of this series. That you don't understand God's grace if you live with a vague sense of God's disapproval. I pray at the end of this series you know that God's approval is not grounded in who you are or what you've done. But rather in who Jesus is and what he has done. You don't understand God's grace if you feel sheepish bringing your needs before him when you've just failed. I pray you better understand knowing that it's not about your success or your failure. That you come to him in the name of Jesus. You've already won because he won. You don't understand grace if you think of grace as something that makes up the difference between the best you can do and what he expects from you. I pray you better understand that all that he expects, Jesus has done. That at the cross there is no gap left. It is all of grace. You don't understand grace that you, if you assume you've sinned so many times that you've messed up your credit of forgiveness. Pray you better understand that 2,000 years ago, everything about you was revealed, your past, your present, and your future. It was all taken to the cross. All forgiven. You are now only seen by grace, through faith, in Christ, as a child of God. And nothing can change that. You 
don't understand grace if you feel more confident before God if you've been faithful in your quiet times, prayer, and witnessing. Again, I pray you realize that it is not your faithfulness. It is the grace of God through Jesus. Your faith in Christ, it is not the quality of your faith that is the object of your faith. And you don't understand faith if you assume you can do something to make him love you less or love you more. I pray you realize that that his love is demonstrated in the giving of his son on the cross. That all he endured, that his cosmic and eternal I love you has been set over you. And that never changes. I pray that you hear the gospel of grace. I pray it would be as this is called the Magna Carta of grace, that this would stand over your life. I pray it would stand over our church, that we would not be confused, susceptible to any other gospel as though there were one. But that we would boast in the cross as we make big the name of Jesus to the glory of God. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we confess this morning it is not what we do, it is what your son Jesus has done. We cannot earn your grace. It can only be experienced through faith. The finished work of Christ on the cross. That's the gospel. We trust him. We trust Jesus and Jesus alone. Father, I pray your heart, you would draw our hearts to him. And that's how we pray. In the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power.